Frontier Gentlemen, here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual accounts. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territory. Now starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentlemen. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. Now well, here is your guide to these adventures of the mind. There is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Now, here is OTR everyone, this is OTR Rob, welcoming you to another edition of Gunsmoke. This episode is from April 11th, 1953, and the episode is entitled Ghana. Now, Ghana is a word that translates into thief or crook, one who steals outright or overcharges for merchandise, and it's a Jewish term. And I think Anthony Ellis would trying to write a script in the way that Les Crutchfield might write the script. And this might be a way that Anthony Ellis was trying to compete with the other two top writers by writing this script. The script seems to me very realistic, and there's no light comedy in this episode at all. And this is the last script that Anthony Ellis would write for Gunsmoke. He would move over to television, and the scenario goes something like this. Frank Bissell and his gang are in Dodge. Uneasy of their presence, Matt Dillon confronts Bissell in the barbershop. And the get out of Dodge term is used once again in this episode. So let's listen to that confrontation. You know what I can see in the mirror, Mr. Dillon? A lot of things, I guess. I can see outside the door. I saw a friend of mine out there a minute ago. I saw a fella... Whip him on the head with his six gun. That's funny, I saw the same thing. My friends don't like being buffalo. They should have done something about it. They should. Maybe they will. Maybe. Now I got something to say, Bissell. B- Bissell? Frank Bissell? Keep on cutting, Barber. I cut no killer's hair. No, sir. If I'd known who you was, I'd never... You heard him. It's all right, Mr. Stapley. You go ahead. Yes, sir. I know your reputation, Bissell. But right now I got no cause to arrest you. So far as I know, you're clean in this territory. Uh, but you're not staying here. Unless you're through in that chair, you and your pals are getting out of Dodge. Well, we just got here, Mr. Dillon. We thought we'd put over for a spell. Here you got mighty fine entertainment here. It doesn't start till after nightfall. And you're going to be gone by then. Hey, everyone, this is OTR Rob, welcoming you to another edition of Frontier Gentlemen. This episode is from April 13th, 1958. And the title of the episode is The Trial. Well, J.B. Kendall finds himself once again in Fort Benton, and he's gone to look up his friend, newspaper editor Warren. And as he walks in the office, he sees a man named George McCune, who's talking to Mr. Warren. McCune wants Warren, who's a newspaper editor, to be his lawyer in court. And J.B. Kendall starts to talk to McEwen about what he's charged with. And he's charged with shooting to death Jack Furlong, who is the friend of the town of Fort Benton. And then the sheriff comes along and he takes George McEwen away to stand trial. And J.B. Kendall decides with the newspaper editor Warren to represent George McEwen because town and all of the people in the town, they're all related to one another. And they're not willing, no one is willing to come forward to be George McEwen's lawyer. So J.B. Kendall decides to take that mantle up. And here's a bit about what goes on. You know, as an outsider, I might be able to defend McCune. You know anything about the law? I know some pretty important words. That might help. And I have a feeling that McCune's telling the truth. I don't know about old Dad Barry, though. If he doesn't admit you to court, there's nothing you can do. I think he will. Let's go and talk to McCune. 
When we arrived at the saloon, it was already half full. The accused man was sitting in a small storeroom, drinking a glass of beer, his, his guns still very much in evidence. Marshal O'Connor stood in the entranceway, trying to appear as though he were guarding his prisoner, although he seemed extremely nervous and was obviously unhappy with his job. He didn't want us to talk to McHugh. I'm sorry, Mr. Warren. I, I can't let either of you gentlemen in to see him. We're his legal counsel, O'Connor. O'Connor, you let him pass by or I'm going to come out. You said you ain't got no lawyer, McHugh. He's got one now. Don't give me no trouble, O'Connor. I ain't in the mood. Well, I see you changed your mind, Warren. I'm real grateful to you. It's not me, McCune. It's Mr. Kendall. He's going to talk for you. How come? I heard what you had to say. I think there's a good chance you're innocent. Are you a lawyer? No, no, but I know something about law. Probably as much as Mr. Warren. Uh-huh. Uh, how much you figure on getting paid? Well, if we win, what you would have paid Warren. If we lose, no. It won't matter. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Chester. Bissell's in the barbershop, Mr. Dillon. There's three of his boys waiting outside and a couple more in with him. All right. You think we might better take care of them separate than all together, Mr. Dillon? Can't take care of them at all, Chester, unless they do something. I'd as soon not wait for it to happen. Have they seen you? No, sir, I don't think so. I've been mostly around the corner here, out of sight. That's good. All right, keep me covered with him. Now, here, you ain't going in there alone. Yeah. Now, now, you can't do that. They take one look at your badge and they'll draw. I don't think there'll be any shooting, Chester. Yes, sir. I started across the street to Stapley's barber shop, and I saw three gunmen lounging outside. They didn't directly look at me, but they knew I was coming over because their hands slipped down and hung an easy distance from their guns. One of them I recognized as Buffalo Mason, a cowboy who found more money working for Frank Bissell as a gunman than driving cattle up from Texas. The other two I'd never seen, but I knew the kind. By the time I'd crossed the street, they'd moved. Stood on either side of the door. Want something, Marshal? I hear your friend Frank Bissell's inside. He might be. Seems to me I told you you weren't to show your nose around here again, Mason. You remember? Not rightly, Marshal. Did you say that? Yeah. Yeah, I said that. Get away from the door. I got a word or two to say to Bissell. Well, how's about you tell me the word, Marshal? I'll pass it along. Frank is kind of busy right now. If I wanted to tell you, I wouldn't be needing to tell him, would I? Well, that's so, Marshal. How come you to take all this talk, Buffalo? Why don't you just kick him out in the street? What's your name? Hey, man! All right, you two. Take your pal over to the water barrel there and cool him off. Move! Howdy, Marshal Dillon. Be with you in just a few minutes. Have a chair. 
Thanks, Mr. Stapley. Yes, sir, I tell you, friend, styles is changing. I seen in the New York magazine a center parking that'd knock your eye out. Sister of mine sent the picture out to me. Now, you sure you wouldn't like me to try it? Just cut it like I told you. Yes, sir, you're the customer. Tom. Yes, sir? Tell Mr. Dillon to step around here where I can see him. You hear what Frank says, mister? I heard it. Take it easy, Bart, with you? Pulling my hair in the back. I'm sorry, sir. You know what I can see in the mirror, Mr. Dillon? A lot of things, I guess. I can see outside the door. I saw a friend of mine out there a minute ago. And I saw a fella whip him on the head with his six gun. That's funny. I saw the same thing. My friends don't like being buffaloed. They should have done something about it. They should. Maybe they will. Maybe. Now I got something to say, Bissell. Bissell? Frank Bissell? Keep on cutting, Barber. I ain't cut no killer's hair. No, sir. If I'd known who you was, I never... You heard him. Finish. All right, Mr. Stapley, go ahead. I know your reputation, Bissell, but right now I got no cause to arrest you. So far as I know, you're clean in this territory. Yeah. But you're not staying here. As soon as you're through in that chair, you and your pals are getting out of Dodge. We just got here, Mr. Dillon. We thought we'd put over for a spell. Here you got mighty fine entertainment here. It doesn't start till after nightfall. And you're going to be gone by then. Funny thing, Mr. Dillon, I've heard a lot of talk about you. Buffalo Mason says he had a run-in with you a few months back. <laughs> I thought you were a different man to what I see. So? So, you're not much. Kind of windy, but not much. Tom, give the marshal a five-dollar piece and show him the door. That's for your duty, Mr. Dillon. Are you all through with him, Mr. Stapley? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I'm all through. Okay. Now get up out of that chair, Bissell. I knew what they meant about Frank Bissell when I saw him smile as he got out of his chair. It was the smile of a man who says one thing with his lips and another with his eyes. He reached down to his holster and then around to his pocket. Pulled out a bill and passed it to the barber. He'd made his move like he wanted to get me to draw. And when I didn't bite, he pulled his hat off the peg and came over to me. The two boys with him went past us and waited by the door. It's like I say, Mr. Dillon, my boys and I are here for some resting and playing. Now, if you want a private little war, you can start gunning for us any time you want. But you'll have to start it. You've got until sundown to leave town, Bissell. Marshal... You didn't hear what I said at all. Sundown. If you're still around after that, you'll all go to jail. We don't want any trouble. We want to take it nice and easy. You take it easy, too, huh? I'll be seeing you. That was him, wasn't it, Marshal? That was Frank Bissell. The Frank Bissell. Oh, Mr. Dillon, if you shot him in here, I could have put up a sign... Yes, sir. I sure could. Frank Bissell, shot and killed here by... I'm sorry I couldn't oblige you, Mr. Stapley. Good day. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, Chester. They're getting out, huh? I didn't think it'd be as easy as that. It isn't. Yes, sir, but look, they're they're riding right on... I gave them until sundown. That's about two hours. Hey, you know, Mr. Dillon, in two hours, them boys can do an awful lot of trouble. They try and there's going to be trouble. Yes, sir. You want me to follow and see where they go? No. Now we'll wait back at the office. 
On the way back, I stopped at the saloons and told the boys to send out word if Bissell and his gang came in after sundown. I told him I'd be waiting in the office. When I got to the Texas Trail, Kitty was leaning against the bar, singing. A half a dozen cowboys were standing around, drinking, but listening quietly. It was a kind of a sad song. Home on the way. Evening, Miss Kitty. Kitty? Yeah. Well, never heard that song before. Oh, well, I haven't either. Fellow was in a while back, brought it by. He uh-huh. Wrote out the words for me. It, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Uh, say, Kitty, there uh, might be a little trouble tonight. Oh? Yeah, Frank Bissell and his boys are in town. I heard it's all over town. I know. Let me know if they come in, will you? Sure, Matt. Okay. I'll see you. So long. So long. Tuneful, Mr. Dillon. You feel like stopping by Delmonico's for supper, Chester? Well, Mr. Dillon, I'm kind of low this week. You see, I sent East for one of them new suits Mr. Hightower was telling about. You know, the ones that's got the vest and all? The thing cut away here and then fine and tight up here? <laughs> I'm sure you'll look fine in it, Chester. Come on, let's get supper. I got money. It was about sundown when we got through supper. I'd gone in Delmonico's mostly with the idea that Bissell would head there himself. That way I could get the thing over before it got really started. But he didn't oblige. Not until Chester and I were getting up from the table. My gracious, Mr. Dillon. I feel swole up like an overfed puppy dog. <laughs> You look like one. (laughs) Mr. Dillon, look. Coming in. Yeah, I see him. All right, let's go. Man, I'm hungry. I could eat me one of... Well. (laughs) Hello, Mr. Dillon. Say, how's the food in here? It's sundown, Mr. Bissell. Yeah, it's late for me to be eating. The boys, too. We're hungry. Come outside. Mr. Dillon, we just came in for a nice, quiet meal. You don't want trouble with all these people in here, Mr. Bissell. Now, you do as I say outside. Come on, huh? You want to start trouble, Marshal? Buffalo, where are your manners? There's women folk in here that might get hurt if shooting started. Frank, you heard... You heard what I said. Besides, Mr. Dillon isn't going to do anything. He's just got to make noise like he does. So those people will think he's doing his job. Well, Mr. Dillon, I sure would like to stay and talk, but... All um... right. All right, go ahead and eat, Bissell. I'll be waiting for you outside. Sure. You do that, Mr. Dillon. You wait for me outside. We will return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, America's best-dressed woman wears the uniform of a nurse. This uniform is a symbol of service to humanity and of an honored and respected profession. 
The nurse's uniform is an open sesame to many fascinating fields aiding the medical profession, research, rehabilitation, work with the men in service, to name only a few. Young woman, if you are a high school graduate, you can enroll now as a student nurse at your nearest hospital. Consult the nurse's registry desk or collegiate school of nursing. You can become one of America's best-dressed women and wear the uniform of a nurse. Now the second act of Gunsmoke. I knew there'd be a lot of talk in Dodge. Some would say that I should have drawn on Frank Bissell and his gang right then in Delmonico's. Well, I had my own opinion about that. Chester and I waited outside for Bissell to get through and come out. By that time, the word was out, and it sounded like every cowboy, bullwhacker, and buffalo hunter in Dodge was hanging around waiting to see the fun. It was dark then, and the moon was rising. A lot of them boys has come up from the other side of the tracks, Mr. Dillon. I know. You got any tobacco on you, Chester? Yes, sir, right here in my... You want I should tell them to get on back? Here you are, sir. Uh, thanks. Now, I tell you, Chester, most of those men have come to a show. They want to see some shooting, some blood and killing. Well, seeing how long... That's what they came for. I don't figure they'll want to be any part of that show. Yes, sir. What are you aiming to do when Bissell comes out? Arrest him. Find Bissell a hundred dollars and the others twenty-five apiece. And lock him up for the night. Yes, sir. The crowd got bigger and it got quieter, too. Standing on both sides of the street with a respectable distance between themselves and the entrance to Delmonico's, where Chester and I waited. It was gone on 8.30 when the door opened, and Frank Bissell stepped out, his boys following after him. You still waiting, Mr. Dillon? I thought you'd be somewhere rolling drunk by now. You're under arrest, Bissell. And all of you. What have we done? We're real peaceful, you can see that. Uh, come on, Frank. Let's get down to the opera house. Hand over your guns. <laughs> Mr. Dillon, I never done that yet. I don't expect I'm going to do it now for you. We're calling your bluff, Dillon. Six of us. Go ahead and start it. Go ahead. I don't want any killing, Bissell. Now you come in quietly. No, Mr. Dillon. I'd made up my mind even before he answered because I knew he wouldn't back down. And the crowd was watching. And in that same second through the window of the restaurant, I saw the figures of two women and a child making for the door. They were right in line with any shooting I might do. Bissell and the others were directly in front of them. And now they had their guns drawn. And mine was still in its holster. Oh, now, I've heard you're pretty fast, Marshal. We talk, Frank. Lots of talk, that's all. Sure, sure, sure. Now, you be a good fellow and go about your business. We're going down to the opera house. Don't come looking around because next time we might have to be real painful with you. <laughs> hey, look at that! You better get out of town, Marshal Dillon. Yes, <laughs> Come on, Chester. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. I'd made two mistakes. 
first going to Delmonico's and figuring I could bluff him out of town without any shooting. And then not getting Bissell away from the restaurant door before calling him. And it wasn't good. A lot of drifters in Dodge were going to take advantage of the situation before the night was out. Law officers don't live long when they make mistakes. Chester and I headed for the Texas Trail. You gonna let him get away with that, Mr. Dillon? For a while. My gracious, Mr. Dillon, they spit right in your eye, every one of them. You ain't gonna take it, are you? I made a mistake, Chester. Now I gotta make it right. Yes, sir, I know, but this will be all over town. Mr. Dillon, will you tell me why you didn't draw and get it done? I had my reasons, Chester. And the skies are not cloudy all day. Matt, I heard you were waiting for Bissell over Delmonico's. I was worried. Everything's fine, Kitty. No, it ain't fine, Miss Kitty. That Frank Bissell drawed on Mr. Dillon and... And and what, Chester? You said you had your reasons, Mr. Dillon. Join us for a beer, Kitty? Sure, Matt. You, you didn't get him out of town? No, not yet. Oh. They liked the song. Did you hear We sat in the Texas Trail, Chester nervous and looking to the door every minute or so. And as a cowboy drifted in, and then another, and a couple more, I could tell that news of what had happened outside Delmonico's had spread. That's the trouble with a reputation. You build it or you get it built for you. It's like a trap. You gotta stay a step ahead of it. If you don't, there's always the question, even with the people you think you know real well, like Chester and Kitty. And I knew they were wondering why I'd back down. I let a half hour go by, which I calculated was enough time for Dodge to make a hero out of Bissell. Then it was time to go. going, Mr. Dillon? The Opera House. The Opera House. That's where they've gone, ain't it? That's right. Well, good. I want you to stay out of this, Chester. Oh, now, Mr. Dillon... You heard I... what I said. Yes, sir. Mr. Dillon? Yeah. Nothing. Now remember what I said, Chester. Keep out of it until you're told. All right, Mr. Dillon, I will. It was between shows at the Opera House, and most all the customers were in the saloon next door. Bissell was at the bar, and his pals were around him, and a dozen or more new found friends standing him drinks. Yeah, the news had got around all right. And the gunman was a hero. He'd made the law back down. Hey, look who's here, boys. Hey, Frank. Look it. Marshal Dillon. Didn't I get through telling you a while back? Are you drunk, Bissell? I never get drunk, Mr. Dillon. Well, I'm glad to hear it. All right, you other men, get away from the bar, quick. You six stay where you are. <laughs> I'm telling you. 
Now, anybody who wants to stay with Bissell and his gang's gonna get hurt. Now, you move. He sure is tough, Frank. <laughs> okay. Mr. Bissell, draw. Oh, now, Mr. Dillon, you don't want me to do that. Yeah, leave me, leave me do it, Frank. I need the practice. No. No, wait a minute, no. I think he means it. Sure, Mr. Dillon, I guess I have been riding you pretty hard. Sure. Anytime you... Well, what are you going to draw, mister? I'm going to tell you something. I could have hit you in the belly as easy as making a hole in the wall. But I don't like killing. Now, you're under arrest, all of you. Chester. Yes, sir. Keep them with their arms up. Yes, sir. Now, you... Take off your guns, Bissell. I said take off your guns and do it now. All right, put them on the bar. Now, I'm putting my gun on the table here. If I'm not on my feet to get it when you and I are finished, it's yours. And I'm through as marshal here. show for the town and a lot of big words to go with it and they swallowed it and Bissell and his gang lost everything including their conceit we put him in jail overnight and the next morning each man was fined $25 Bissell $100 and they rode out a dodge I'd be a liar if I didn't admit I did a little more than my job when I threw my gun away and Worked Bissell over with my fists. He was a hard man. And I might have lost. Except that... I had my reputation to think about. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Barney Phillips, Jack Crucian, and Howard McNear. Parley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Tomorrow night, Mrs. Lou Gehrig, wife of baseball's immortal, joins Lionel Barrymore on the Hall of Fame Playhouse. As a tribute to the great national pastime, your Hall of Fame Playhouse dramatizes the story of Henry Chadwick, the father of baseball. Learn about the origin of baseball. Hear of a man's vision that blossomed forth as America's most popular sport. Tomorrow night on most of these same stations when CBS Radio presents Lionel Barrymore's Hall of Fame Playhouse. George Walsh speaking. And remember, every Sunday evening, the Theater of Stars invites you to the best in drama with your favorite stars on the CBS Radio Network.
There's a fever in Fort Benton, Montana Territory. To say that it was unusual is putting it mildly. Frontier Gentlemen. with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. Nothing had changed in Fort Benton since I'd left it five weeks earlier, except perhaps for one thing. It was spring now. You could feel it in the streets, smell it in the sun-warm air. I walked up to the little building that housed the Fort Benton Dispatch, a newspaper run by John Warren, whom I had met during my last visit. Outside, a group of men were standing about, peering through the windows. I thought that they looked at me rather strangely when I went inside, and it only took a moment to see why. The newspaper editor, Mr. Warren, sat, pale-faced, looking at a rather fierce individual who stood a few feet away from him, wearing two pistols and cradling a shotgun in his arms. Mr. Kendall. Colonel, how are you, Mr. Warren? Um, am I interrupting? No, no, uh, sit down. This is George McCune, J.B. Kendall. Howdy. Mr. McCune? That's right. What are you, uh, deputy or something? No. Mr. Kendall's a newspaper man, writes for the London Times. Oh, is that right? Well, what do you say, Warren? Well, it's the way I told you. I'm not a lawyer. I might do you more harm than good. You're going to be like them others, huh? It's not that, but Clint Wallace is a smart man. He knows the law. That there Wallace is a no-good son of a gun. If he tries any of them smart lawyer tricks on me, I'm going to salivate him right through his fat gizzard. Wallace is prosecuting McCune for the murder of Jack Furlong. Uh, oh, oh, I see. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you something right here now. I didn't shoot that lily-livered cutback of a ruptured hog, no how. Not that I ain't saying whoever done oughtn't to get a medal. I'm inclined to believe him, Kendall. The trouble is, there's not a lawyer in town to take his case. Now, I'm willing to face up to what them Furlong says I done if I get a fair trial. But I've seen what that... Outlawyer Wallace can do with his fancy twisting words. You know, he got me hung right now. Uh, do you mind my asking, uh, haven't you been arrested? Well, sure, I've been arrested. How come you think I'm still in Benton? I mean, isn't it usual for a suspect to be in jail? Look, there ain't nobody gonna put me in the calaboose, especially for something I ain't done, not know how. Ain't a man in Benton big enough to try it. Why do they suspect you? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because that eyeballer Buck Furlong, him and that cow critter wife of his, they got it in for me ever since I whooped Buck's brother Jack in a poker game. That's why I cleaned him out. And he swore he'd get even with me. The whole blame family's been going around Benton saying I gouged Jack in the game. Me gouged you. I ain't never cheated in cards all my born days. Well, do they have any proof, I mean, that, that it was you? They ain't got nothing. Here's a mule skinner in town, Ike Dawlish. He he says he saw McCune arguing with Jack Furlong a few minutes before the shooting. That fella Dawlish, he herded one band of sheep too many. You know, that fella's plumb loco. Everybody around here knows that. Except they take his word because they got it in for me. Shucks, I was up to the other end of town sleeping off a belly full of popsicle when it happened. Anybody see you? Well, if they did, they ain't coming up to say so. Mm. When did it happen, the shooting? Well, it was about two nights back. First I heard of it was the next morning. That Marshal O'Connor, he come up to me, he says, McCune, I got to arrest you for the murder of Jack Furlong. Well, sir, I says to him, Marshal, I hear tell you like to talk of Wendy. Don't you try it on me this morning, because I got a head on me that's giving me the ork orcs. Well, sir, he comes back at me, and he says, I ain't lying, McCune. 
you've been identified as a murderer, you'll have to come down to jail with me. And I says, you must be seeing black, O'Connor. If you think I'm going to do any such thing and you try and draw on me, I'll be happy to swap shots with you. <laughs> but I ain't going to pull freight out of here if that's what's worrying you. I'm an innocent man, and you're going to have to prove me otherwise. The trouble is, like I keep telling you, McCune, you're the one who's going to have to prove otherwise. They've got the witness. Oh, well, why can't you get a lawyer to defend you, Mr. McCune? Well, sure, now I'll tell you why. Because that there Buck Furlong's wife, Maggie, is Barry's daughter, that's why. And Dad Barry's the justice of the peace, and they ain't no lawyer with stuffings enough to stand up again at old whistling britches. Ah, uh, that does make it rather awkward. You know something? It ain't right nor fitting in these times that a man can be telling the truth and no one believe him. Now, look, Warren, you ain't afraid of that dad, Barry, are you? You know I'm not. Well, then I'll pay you a hundred and silver if you talk for me. I'd like to, McCune, but... All right. All right. You don't have to say no more. I'm walking me up to the trial house, and I'm going in and let them say what they want, and then I'm walking out, and the first man tries to stop me is going to get lead poison. Well, what do you want, O'Connor? Uh, George McCune is marshal of this here town, and the authority vested in O'Connor, me. come on, talk horse. What you want? I got to take you down for the trial, McCune. I'm asking you polite-like to give up your guns. I'm going to go with you, O'Connor, because you got a duty. But if you think I'm giving up my sixers of this here goose gun, you don't know no more than a mule-eared rabbit. Now, let's rattle hawks out of here. You know, I feel sorry for him, but I'm glad to see him out of here. He's been with me for better than two hours, Kendall. Yes, I can see where he could be quite persuasive. You know, I wasn't kidding. If I'd have thought I could help him, I would. But I'm no good at public speaking and never was. Break out all of a sweat. He'll do better alone. Who is he? Well, McCune, he used to be an Indian scout with Crook. Hadn't been able to forget his ways. He's a tough man and likes folks to know it. That's why even if he didn't kill Furlong, most everybody figures he did. The jury will, too. You don't think so? No. No, he wouldn't have stayed around for the trial if he had. Besides, he wouldn't have killed a man like Jack Furlong. He'd have got more fun out of stomping his head in. I knew Furlong, his scroungy little toad, always fooling around with women. Somebody else's if he could. What'll happen if the jury finds McCune guilty? I don't know. It'll be trouble, though. Uh, it seems a bit unfair, doesn't it? Well, sure it is. But what are you going to do? You know, as an outsider, I might be able to defend McCune. You know anything about the law? Well, I know some pretty important words. That might help. And I have a feeling that McCune's telling the truth. I don't know about old Dad Barry, though. If he doesn't admit you to court, there's nothing you can do. I think he will. Let's go and talk to McCune. When we arrived at the saloon, it was already half full. The accused man was sitting in a small storeroom, drinking a glass of beer, his, his guns still very much in evidence. Marshal O'Connor stood in the entranceway, trying to appear as though he were guarding his prisoner, although he seemed extremely nervous and was obviously unhappy with his job. He didn't want us to talk to McCune. I'm sorry, Mr. Warren. I, I can't let either of you gentlemen in to see him. We're his legal counsel, O'Connor. O'Connor, you let him pass by or I'm going to come out. You said you ain't got no lawyer, McHugh. He's got one now. Don't give me no trouble, O'Connor. I ain't in the mood. All right, close the door, O'Connor. Well... I see you changed your mind, Warren. I'm real grateful to you. It's not me, McCune. It's Mr. Kendall. He's going to talk for you. How come? I heard what you had to say. I think there's a good chance you're innocent. Are you a lawyer? No, no, but I know something about law. Probably as much as Mr. Warren. Uh-huh. Uh, how much you figure on getting paid? Well, if we win, what you would have paid Warren. If we lose, no. It won't matter. Yeah. All right. All right, you got yourself a deal. But I want to tell you something, Kendall. If they call me Gilly, you better duck, because it's going to be the ding-dangest shoot-up you ever saw in Benton. In a moment... 
we return to Frontier Gentlemen. A diller, a dollar. Here's a real chiller diller for the mystery scholar. Follow yours truly, Johnny Dollar, later today on CBS Radio. There's action-packed drama as Johnny Dollar, a suave insurance investigator, covers the globe with his expense account to track down frauds and schemers. Every Sunday, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, meets mystery, romance, thrills, and mayhem. So be sure you meet up with Johnny Dollar on most of these same stations for high-keyed excitement right here on CBS Radio. Now we return you to the Anthony Ellis production of Frontier Gentlemen. At one o'clock, the saloon courtroom was full. The judicial bench was the counter, and whiskey barrels set up on end in front of it served as the legal bar. Twelve good men and true sat at tables placed to the side in a row. They were highly conscious of their importance to the community, and only four were taking advantage of the convenience of whiskey close at hand. Windows and doors stood open for the comfort of those inside who might feel the spring warmth and for the accommodation of those crowded outside, unable to obtain even standing room. At one o'clock, court was called to order, the clock hammering on the bar with the butt of his pistol. Order! Order! We got a case coming up in this here courtroom on account of George McCune, bushwhack Jack Furlong, and he's going to get tried for it. Oh, now, everybody get up in the cloud knocker, because here's his honor, Dad Bear, who is the judge of this here murder. All right, everybody set. <coughs> Court's in session, and I aim to state this ain't going to be no box social, so don't nobody forget it. Clint Wallace. Uh, right here, Your Honor. You ready to prosecute? I'm ready, Your Honor. How about the defense? <coughs> The defense is ready. Who are you? J.B. Kendall. I've been retained as barrister to plead the case for my client, George McCune. You one of them traveling lawyers? Uh, no, sir. You got papers allowing you to talk in the territory of Montana? No, sir. Then sit down. Well, I submit, Your Honor, that Mr. McCune has a right to be heard and is within those rights to call whomsoever he chooses to speak for him. He has chosen me. A, uh, a... A prima facie rule of law. <clears throat> Phipps versus Mahoney, Nougat, um, 1803. <clears throat> What's he talking about, Clausen? Well, it sounds like law talk to me, Your Honor. Uh, give me that legal book. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, well, I ain't gonna hold up this trial whittle-wanging with you, mister. Ipso facto. So don't go trying any jackleg stuff with me or by ziggity. I'll find you for contempt of this here judicial court. Miss Abby, bring in the prisoner. I'll bring in George McHugh. Ain't nobody bringing me in. I'll bring him own self. My shoe, this hombre's on trial for murder. What's he doing with them shooting irons and the shotgun? Uh, McHugh, you better give me them guns. I ain't giving you nothing. <laughs> Marshal, Julius. Marshal, hear what I say? Take them weapons off in him. Hey, Yana. Now, I got a big respect for things legal. That's how come I'm here. But if anybody tries to take my sixes, there's going to be a mess of trouble. These here weapons is to protect myself. Marshal, I'm telling you. Hey, Dad, you want them guns, you go get them yourself. <laughs> <laughs> What are you objecting about, Clint? Ain't your court? I'll get on to the trial. <clears throat> Our gentlemen of the jury, we're going to prove that George McCune did with malice and plain ornery cussedness kill poor old Jack Furlong on Thursday last at 9.30 o'clock. The way she's carrying on, you'd think she was married to Jack instead of Buck. We will prove that the killer McCune did take... Objection! What's the objection, mister? The learned counsel refers to my client as a killer. This has yet to be proved in trial. <laughs> 
Ain't no call to object. Go ahead, Clint. <clears throat> the killer, McCune, did take a forty-five and blew two holes in said deceased Jack Furlong. It killed him. We got witnesses to say how it happened. <clears throat> That's all, Your Honor. All right. Hey, you. What's your name? Kendall. Yeah. Well, go on and make your speech. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, gentlemen of the jury, I shall not take up your time with a verbose statement. I will only say that when the trial is at an end, you, the peers of George McCune, will send him from this courtroom a free man, exonerated of any complicity in this crime. Clint, call the first witness. I call Buck Furlong, the dead man's poor brother, to the stand. Now, you uh, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so I help you? Sure. Well, tell what your name is, Buck. Jax, you know my name, Slauson. Now, Buck, this here's a court of law. We got to do things right. State your name. Buck Furlong. Oh, uh, Mr. Furlong, I'd be obliged if you'd tell the court just what happened on Thursday night. Sure, Clint. Like everybody knows, that no-count McCune shot my brother Jack. I, I object. You shut up, mister. It ain't your turn yet. Go ahead, Buck. Jack said he was coming down here to your place, Dad, for a shot of whiskey. And that sidewinder McCune dry Listen, dog, you flea-bit mule himself. McCune, I'm fining you $20 for pulling the gun in this here court. That is contempt. No more questions, Your Honor. Cross-examination. Go on. <coughs> Mr. Furlong, you... You say that McCune killed your brother? He sure did. How do you know that? Everybody knows it. I didn't ask that. How do you know? Because he's the only one could have done. Ike Dawlish seen him do it. And Mr. Dawlish told you. Well, sure. Ain't that right, Dad? That's right, Buck. <coughs> told me, too. You had no other proof? I didn't need none. That's all, Mr. Furlong. Thank you. Next witness. There were ten more witnesses after that, all proclaiming Jack Furlong's good name and damning McCune's. The trial was momentarily interrupted when two deer were spotted frolicking in a meadow a hundred yards from the courtroom. There was a wild dash to the windows in order to obtain a better view. When order was restored, one of the prosecution's most important witnesses was called, Mrs. Buck Furlong. <laughs> oh, Maggie, there ain't a soul here don't understand how you felt about your brother-in-law. It's the truth, the holy truth. <laughs> sure. Now, you tell the court what you know about the murder. Well, well, that highbinder McCune, it wasn't enough he cheated our poor Jack out of his money, which everyone in Benton knows. He hated him because his conscience wouldn't let him sleep. Haunted him like. So what I figure is when poor Jack went down to get himself a drop of whiskey for his poor tooth, which was ailing him something terrible, he run into McCune and him being a drunken skunk. McCune couldn't stand a face up to him, so he shot him up. <laughs> That's how it happened, Pa, Your Honor. You just ask Ike Dawlish, he'll tell you. Poor Jack, dead. Poor Jack. No more questions, Your Honor. <laughs> Mrs. Furlong. And you, uh, mister, you ought to be ashamed defending a sucking coyote like that. Ain't nobody. Man, no woman called Again, that's contempt. Court finds you $20. Now, Your Honor, I feel that my client is showing admirable control under the circumstances. You got more questions asked, mister? <clears throat> Mrs. Furlong, you were very fond of your brother-in-law, were you not? A sweet honey boy, he was. Yes, I am sure this must be very painful. But aside from what you were told, you have absolutely no proof that George McCune shot Jack Furlong. Oh! Murdered with. 
you very much, Mrs. Furlong. That's all. Order! 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 Well, sir, don't seem to me like there's much sense going on with this here trial. From what I've heard, McCune's as good as hung right now. Oh, Your Honor! You objecting again, mister? Well, the prosecution hasn't called the eyewitness. Oh, that's a waste of time, you ask me. All right, Clint, call your next witness. I call Ike Dawlish, the man who saw the killing done. Now, you swear to tell the whole truth, Dawlish? Yes, sir, I surely do swear. Uh, your name is Ike Dawlish? Oh, yes. Where was you on Thursday night at 9.30? Well, like I told you, Mr. Wallace, I was coming along the street outside this saloon. When I got to the corner, there was George McCune shooting up Poor old Jack Furlong. Then, then he turns and sees me and takes off out of there like a snake-eyed swish tail. I walk over to Jack and he's lying there feeling mighty poorlyish. And I come in here and tell old Dad Barry and he goes out and sees what happened. That's all. And you swear it was George McEwen done the shooting? Oh, I swear, I surely swear. He's plumb local. Shut your mouth, McEwen, or I'll find you for contempt. I'm all through, Your Honor. You got any questions, Kendall? Yes, a few. Now, what time was it when you saw the shooting, Mr. Dawlish? 9.30 o'clock. Mm. It was dark? Surely was. How close were you to McCune? Well, fairish way, maybe to where Mr. Wallace is sitting. Uh, 20 feet, and you recognized McCune in the dark from 20 feet away? Oh, not in the dark, when he come out in the light. Ah, in the light, and you had a good look at his face? Good enough. You saw his face? Well, kind of, but I seen McCune around, I know what he looks like without seeing his whole face. How was he dressed? Like he is now. I got a good memory. Them same gray pants. Hey, what's that? Uh, go on. Gray pants. Kind of a black jacket and gray shirt. Black Stetson, too, like in his hand. Exactly the same clothes as he wore the night before last, eh? The same. McCune. McCune, will you describe for Mr. Dawlish what you are wearing? I got on black pants, blue jacket, blue shirt, gray Stetson. Same as always were. Mr. Dawlish, what is the color of my jacket? Uh... Gray. You are colorblind, my friend. I don't think you saw Mr. McCune at all. I think you either saw someone else, or perhaps you shot Jack Furlong yourself and blamed it on McCune. I'm getting out of here. How did you know, Candle? <laughs> I didn't. Not until Dawlish made that slip about color. The rest was luck. You know, I feel kind of sorry for little Runt, even if he did blame it on me. Has he said why he did it? Oh, well, it seems Jack Furlong was rather romantically inclined toward Dawlish's wife. He knew Mr. McEwen would be the easiest person to blame for the shooting, and, well, that was that. Hey, and not that it makes no never mind, but listen to that Maggie Furlong. You figure maybe she and Jack was, uh... Romantically inclined? Hmm? I figure that Jack Furlong had a very bad case of spring fever. It killed him. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Jack Crucian, Harry Bartell, Joe Kearns, Will Wright, Jack Moyles, Jeanette Nolan, Vic Perrin, and Stacey Harris. Music was composed and conducted by Amerigo Marino. Now stay tuned for the Ford Roadshow to be followed by the CBS News over most of these same stations. Join us again next week for another report from the Frontier Gentlemen. John Wall speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. <laughs> <laughs>